and welcome to yet another episode of The Dice Are Screaming! Oh! Thump. <laughs> or flailing about. Right? <laughs> the dice are flailing helplessly. Yes, much like we are. And, speaking of that, we have a good topic for you tonight. We hope you'll enjoy. And, of course, it's the weekend, so we have some fine weather here in Michigan as it's deciding to change its mind rapidly by the hour. Not Snow much. this morning and, you know. <laughs> yes, back, forth. There's an angry druid involved in this somewhere. See, I told you, there's a reason I don't trust those shiftless hippies. Yeah, you've got to watch out for the druids. I think uh, the land of Michigumi they, is a cursed land. Ah, yes. Rapidly shifting weather patterns. But, mm -hmm. hey, the overall trend is towards warm, and I'm told that solar flares may result in West Michigan actually being able to see... The Northern Lights yeah. tonight. So, for those of you in, in the Northern Hemisphere... Uh, you that know, means you, Tharabal. Gaze upwards into the heavens. Uh, for With your arms outstretched for a period of 45 or 15 minutes, or until your arms get tired. <laughs> uh, uh, gaze uh, up starward, and you might get a treat. I'm, I'm hoping that I will see something tonight. Yeah, me too. Uh, that having been said, we have a call-in. Yes, we do, from Joe Richter of Real or Woe. Woe. Yes, and uh, he has a piece of his mind to give to us, so take it away, Joe. Hey, what up, guys? It's Joe Richter again. Uh, that was another great episode, uh, talking about dungeons, man. I don't run a whole lot of dungeons, just because... I don't know why. I just never really have. But, I, well, for one reason, I know my player, my current players don't really like them that much. But I think they're great and super fun, and I've had some awesome times in them. And as far as recommendations or suggestions for what y'all should do in the future, I love hearing you guys talk about the old modules and breaking them down. I think that's terrific. I would love to hear you guys talk about MERP. I know we've talked about it on Twitter a little bit. And I'm not sure how super familiar you guys are with it. But, yeah, Merp is awesome, especially that little mini adventure in the back. I ran it, like, three or four times as a kid. It was probably the first thing I ever ran. And so yeah, it would be great to hear you guys talk about something like that. All right, have a good one, and good luck with your live show tonight. Peace. All right, thanks for that. And, yeah, we do like ourselves some Merp. We have some experience there, actually. Uh, yeah. we, we had a Merp campaign running for a little bit until my ignoble end. Um, well, you created another character got back on the Oh, first. yeah. I, I, it didn't embitter me in any way. It was a fun game. Uh, yeah, I had made a Third Age of Erebor before The uh, Hobbit, and uh, a little ahead of my time for the fact, I like to brag, that uh, it was doing this back in 85, well before the Lord of the Rings multi Oh, oh yeah. player came in. Uh, this this well predates the movie. <laughs> no, no, the, the game, the MMO. Oh, me. oh, the MMO, all right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, where the Witch King was uh, the force to be reckoned with in the area, and, uh, you know, uh, orcs moving about and other such unsavory things, and shifting alliances in the kingdoms of the north shattered by the absence of the king in the south, you know, and enjoyable game. I mean, they did a terrific job, including a lot of the backstory and very technically yeah, accurate regarding the, the material. And, yeah, and the DMing was not crap either, okay? I'll just, uh, I'll throw you a bone. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy came up with a 
sat there right to the Similarin. Yeah, thank you. Oh, um, the Silmarillion. Yes. Yeah, Silmarillion. Yes. Uh, yeah, I did uh, delve from that. But yeah, uh, they got captured by the Witch King of Amgard and brung before him. And let's also remember that at the time I was 15 and exceptionally belligerent. So perhaps, and I'm just going to throw this out here, maybe refusing to bow before he whom I referred to as the chicken wing of Hangnail was not the best foot to step forward on. I, I may have misjudged how that encounter was going to go, but I, I was determined to, like, I'm, <laughs> I will die like I lived, loud-mouthed. <laughs> and headless. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Not a thought in his mind, but uh, yeah, he got his head cut right off, didn't even let him uh, finish the sentence before the axe falls. And uh, Yeah, but... The rest of the players managed to get uh, free and, uh, you know, after being sent to the salt mines, um, they managed to break, uh, do a breakout in Merp, and uh, we had a good time with the game and uh, played for a long time. Let's see, we had uh, some type of blue wizard. Blue wizard shopped the food. No, not that kind of blue wizard. But <laughs> Wasn't that uh, Scott Bonney's character? Or no, that was, was uh, that Steve Nash. Steve Nash, okay. Yeah, Scott was playing one of the uh, Dunedin uh, Legacy That's Lords. It. He had a l line of Legacy in him. and the Dunedin. And had some uh, elves of Mirkwood and a dwarf. Scott was a dwarf. Ah. If I right. recall that. Or no, Scott was the ranger. There was no. Steve Polly was the dwarf fighter from that one. First okay. time he'd ever played a dwarf. But no, good times were had. We enjoyed Merp. We actually had, had it in mind to maybe do a dissection of uh, our available early copy of the game and uh, discuss, you know, yeah. the, the more technical aspects. Yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of, uh, just we'll touch real quick here. It, it was a pastiche of, uh, you know, just a, a kind of bare bone system of Rollmaster, but it had a lot of meat on its bone. And I think that it uh, gets a short shrift these days as far as people go retrospectives into old school games. It was kind of a unique game, and uh, understanding the principal uh, foundations of Tolkien's universe, like there are no gods, that you, well, there kind of are, and there are, the elves are, there's no magic, yes, there is actual magic, and it's a world in decline, <laughs> and it's winding down, and all these other things that... Uh, and age is coming to a close. Yeah, and so you get that, and so that's why I put it so... Uh, distant from the uh, Lord of the Rings itself, and I think that that's where they caught on. Um, it's a, The supplements for it were great, and, you know, I kind of pined that I couldn't use everything in the so-called modern token epic. Aww. But, you know, there were certain things that were changed, and I had to use that, but... Yeah, Merp was good, but also, uh, thank you for the advice on the dungeons. I understand that uh, some people don't like them, and, you know, the only people as the DM you have to answer to is your group of players. Oh, yeah. Look, I, I happen to like uh, a wide variety myself. Um, I am notoriously neutral on the subject of uh, game-style absolutism. I, I just, I, I like... Anything where I'm hitting the table and there's dice in hand, I'm usually pretty happy right out of the gate. Uh, but some people do have a marked preference for less dungeon-heavy adventures, yeah. uh, which we should really sometime... Uh, you know, we we did do a cursory examination of the topic. I think it would be a lot of fun to, to do a strictly non-dungeon really micro-focus on the social dynamic campaign style. Yeah, we've kind of hinted, we've hit around it, but we haven't really dug at it, I don't think. We kind of like, 
Yeah, we've touched on it in several ways with, uh, you know, guilds and intrigue and espionage and, you know, guild politics of the Thieves' Guild and the Assassin's Guild, but we never really have dug at... I want to crack the bones on that and really get at the marrow. You okay. Know? Well, we'll, we'll, we are doing we'll about the uh, War of the Thrones. Yeah, which is why it's been on my mind lately, because the War of the Thrones campaign is kicking back into gear. Petros of Opara rides again. Yes, with Destiny's Barbin. All right, so uh, thank you, uh, Joe. And, uh, yeah, we'll just uh, we'll keep it in mind, man. And, uh, again, thanks a lot for all the shout-outs on Twitter, guys. You're just an awesome person, and uh, I wish I had the time to do what I did today, but I was just a busy, busy beaver today. Me and the wife were out and about. Oh, good on you. So, all right, but our topic, topic, well, topic, topic. That, that brings us to the meat and potatoes of the show. Uh, and speaking of which, you know, we are the the <laughs> uh, corned beef and cabbage and Guinness part oh. of gaming podcasts. <laughs> Thank you, St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Ooh. Ah, the post-St. Patrick's Day blues. Oh. <laughs> uh, Nothing like a warm cup of Guinness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what are we talking about today? Well, let's see. Uh... The Ecology of the Barachathelum. Oh, theorem. Ah. no more of the Balachathelum. Balachathelum. No. No? No, the no. Ecology. We need, we need something a little, with, with a little more kick to it. Let's see. Oh, I know. Since you like to talk about kimonos, let's talk about those fellows who wear nothing but bedsheets, robes, and shaved heads. The monk. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Oh, boy, if you want to get the grognard stirred up, besides messing around with changing chainmail bikinis in the equipment list, one thing you can get them all stirred up about is the inclusion of monks. Some people hate them, some people like them, some people feel it dilutes the rarefied atmosphere of Western-type gaming, which I say, who on you? Your game should be inclusive enough to end... <laughs> Look, uh, capable of holding. I, a I didn't sign form on. Of... I didn't sign on to play. Feel like uh, um, the medieval France. Uh, yeah, so the, the role-playing game during the reign of Philip II. Your campaign will only range a total distance of perhaps one hundred miles at most. <laughs> so yeah. you know, you, I've never seen the ocean. Uh, right. You know, just no, no, no. If you're if you're playing at the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh, yeah. yeah, I slipped that in there. Yeah, it's a terrific book, by the way, Playing at the World. Uh, very good book about role-playing games. Well, uh, yeah, the monk uh, rises hackles because, you know, it's kind of seen as an Eastern influence. And they're right. It does have its roots in Eastern mysticism and a little bit of the gentrified view of the mysterious East. But it was uh, initially came out in Blackmore, 1975. Yeah, and I'm going to make a spe special note about that because, honestly, there's a thing that's forgotten. Uh, it, it literally couldn't be known by somebody who wasn't there. 1975, America. Bruce Lee was all over the place. Uh, you know, martial arts movies, uh, badly dubbed, hideously translated, uh, but coming out of Asian markets were flowing over to the United States, and in those days, there was no cable, per se. 
Certainly not at the late seventies. Okay, that that just you know five ten years down the road, HBO and things like that would come out. But at that moment in the United States, circa nineteen seventies, martial arts fever had hit big time, and those movies just enamored an entire generation. They were cropping up on uh, small television channels back when there were <laughs> tiny independent stations in addition to big network stations. So there might be ABC, NBC, CBS in every single market, but there was generally somewhere within range of people one UHF. station. Yeah, one weird channel that, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they would buy up old movies, uh, and things that were not terribly expensive, and then they would run those at about 10, 11 o'clock at night. So if you were 10 or 11 years old and managed to get to stay up on a weekend night uh, during the summertime, there were these movies with these amazing stunt kicks and things like that that would enamor any 11-year-old's mind. Just, they were yep. too much. Uh, well, they also had them during, uh, in our neck of the woods, they had a... Uh, uh, gosh, was it martial arts theater or something like that? But yeah. yeah, Mike's right. I mean, there were martial arts studios cropping up all over the place. It was a craze. And Brian Bloom, one of the Bloom brothers, came up with the original Monk class. And it was loosely modeled after The Destroyer, which is why I say it has the gentrified version. It was a novel series with an ancient master who had achieved and unlocked all the secrets of martial arts. And I was teaching it to a government operative. And he was only teaching them in small bits of amounts. You can see it in, uh, what was it called, Remo Williams? Oh my gosh, yes. The adventure begins. Yeah, and ended. But <sighs> Well, you know, not Fred Ward's fault. I enjoyed the movie. Yeah, but each one of the novels he would learn a new technique, like learning how to control his breathing, uh, you know, not just like holding your breath, but actually stopping your heart rate and appearing to be dead. And all, the monk class really shows from that. But that's kind of an esoteric, but that's where we were with the monk. It, was, it seems kind of to a lot of people, like it didn't embody martial arts per se. It embodied a kind of strange clash of a mixture of abilities that just really didn't make much sense. But yeah. of course, the one thing that the monk was feared for, the quivering palm. Ah, yes. The death touch. Mm -hmm. um, well, the nonsensical part may have been because there were so many different sources mm -hmm. uh, with so many different influences com competing for attention at the same time. When they first drafted the monk class, it came out as a mishmash jumble of all this stuff that, you know, some players at some tables were like, well, I want to do this stuff from this thing that I saw that was really cool. Yeah. And it was an answer to a question. There was there was a want there, and then gaming just said, hey, let's meet that want. Was it perfectly stitched together out of the gate? Oh, no. Not no, at it, all. It was in effort to kind of be balanced to other classes. Hideously underpowered at the first levels. Which <laughs> let it, you know, even though you got two hit dice... You were too four-sided hit dice, so you were just slightly a little more tougher than a magic user and about the same level as a thief. Yeah, it was... It 
a compromise, and there were a lot of compromises. It, and your weapon selection was pretty crappy, and your hand-to-hand -hand damage wasn't good. But you were a monk. You could only go up from there. Yeah, they did try to hammer home that, like, well, you're a level one monk. You're an initiate. You know, you just you're you're the guy with the white belt. Like, this is my first class. <laughs> yeah. uh. You're gonna get punched. Ow! That really hurt. Yeah, well, you should, probably should have brought a weapon, maybe some armor and a shield. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sticking with this. Yeah. Not for the faint of heart. I'm going to say this about uh, the early monks. There are only two kinds of players who managed to get a high-level monk in old-school D&D. Those who had generous DMs, and those who were tough and determined as well as smart. Because if you managed to crawl your way out of those first five levels... Mm -hmm. You were playing like a pro. <laughs> yep, slowly and but surely the monk would change. Um, a Dragon Magazine article, which was, I believe, loosely titled, called uh, The Monk. He has more to kick about. And uh, started uh, refining the monk to make it more balanced. And I think that took it away from the kind of hodgepodge of the Destroyer, or representation of the Destroyer novels class, into kind of like a formulative martial arts with abilities right out the gate that made it worth playing at first level, oh, and also yeah. an armor class that was more than just no armor. Yeah, they eventually, somebody, typical of gaming, I mean, because there's always somebody who will sit down and do the, the research on this, if not the original authors, then there's a fanboy out there who's like, I could do better. You know, they should have analyzed this and included that. Uh, gaming is wonderful that way, in that it self-corrects. The helm constantly adjusts based on what people are interested in. And this is true also in the case of the monk. Uh, the later tables came out for adapting various styles, when you consider that, yeah, that... Uh, marsh various martial arts include some are really focused on the legs, others are more about grappling, uh, Still others are very much flurry of blows from the arms. Yeah. Uh, so you began to see these, you know, visible differences broken down into tables and charts. So that here you have somebody who is doing something more like uh, wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, versus over here you have someone doing something more like northern taekwondo. Uh, radically different martial arts. And that came up about the time at Earth Arcana where uh, Oriental Adventures had just come out and so they moved the monk from core Advancements and Dragons into Oriental Adventures where it was more modular. Like you could design your own martial arts style and they had rules for that. And of course Dragon Magazine would uh, come out with many articles on their uh, Oriental themed issues on new martial arts styles, or ones that were incorporating real world. And once again, to reflect back on the movie culture of the 1970s with the movies that were flowing out of Asia at the time, uh, competition between schools was a major theme recurring yeah. in so many of these movies. So naturally enough, the material promptly began to reflect that. That, like, here's this vast array of schools, and you may find yourself in competition against people from another school. Yeah, the uh, your style against... versus theirs. Yeah, and there you had, like, the monk class uh, kind of coming into its own in the Oriental Adventures, and possibly for the better. It also was out of the game for a lot of people, and then it, the matter would be settled in 2nd edition, where the monk was kind of less 
a class as an option kit. And there you started moving into different uh, subclasses and things like that, where it was kind of suborned for a while into a kit and then oh, yeah. revitalized again in another form. Um, I think it was, I can try to remember the supplement that had the martial arts in it, but yeah, it was one of those flat books. My second edition lore starts to fail me, but yeah, it kind of just kind of lingered. And um, then third edition came and they put it right back in the rules, right in your face. So here you are, monks again. Yeah, and they did a fine job of it too. I mean, the by the time they had ironed out the wrinkles in three point five, what you had was a reasonably coherent, uh, relatively well balanced uh, starting member of the party. You know, they they could carry their own weight, yeah. pretty handily. Kind of like that original or of Dragon article out of the fifties, I think it was. Uh, a number of the issues, yeah. The oh, oh, the all right, fifties issues. I was like, we didn't. Yeah, nineteen fifties. Oh hell no. I was driving my Bel Air. And yeah, I was, you know, looking at, uh, you know, uh, my Ford Fairlane, and then I found a copy of Dragon Magazine in the uh, glove compartment, and I found a Monk article, and then, you know, that sealed the deal for me. I knew then that my destiny lie in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, designing D&D. Could have happened. Could have happened. Oh, if only. Yeah. Oh, oh be oh, still boy. my heart. Oh, man. You're going to see the kimono open if we start talking about Hunter S. Thompson. No, no, no. I mean, in the uh, 50s era of the Dragon Magazine, like, I was like, 50s through 60s era of issues was really kind of where there was a lot of experimentation of classes because Gygax wasn't around doing much anymore as far as, you know, pontificating. He was a real busy guy, and so, you know, people started to slip some stuff in, and, you know, then you came back and, like, I don't know, we got to ham-handed, and then the Barbarian and the Cavalier came along, and then we were all screwed. Oh, yeah, well, second edition being what it was. Well, uh, yeah, that 1.5 that, version. That 1.5 zone, uh, you know, it, it really, second edition was crying out to happen yeah. by the time it happened. I'm yeah. not, I, I have mentioned in the past my dissatisfaction with portions of the second edition, but I know why it happened. Yeah, we... Okay, you know, that we, we got into like 15 years of gaming before that, almost... Or no, what was it, about uh, 10? Uh, yeah, about 10. About 10 years yeah, of gaming. 10, yeah. And then they, they sharpened things up. But yeah. a lot happened in those 10 years but, that they had to adjust for. But the monk in its place with the monastery system and fighting right from the first edition was, you know, kind of unique experience for a player to have. And also having that stunning ability, the quivering palm. Uh, now, this was, mind you, gained only at the highest levels. They, they touched that could kill. Yeah. On command. Well, I think you were, what, 11th or 12th level or something like that. But that was a lot of experience points. Monk's experience points was kind of balanced to the whole of, well, you get all these amazing powers, but you need a ton of experience points to advance levels, and you have to fight your way up the ladder. Uh, it's it's more noticeworthy at the higher levels. Uh, you you yeah. kind of crossed a threshold where you were moving along kind of at a pace with mages. Up to a point. <laughs> then things became extremely challenging. And they also threw in, much like druids, that you must challenge your superiors. Uh, yeah, the first rule of Monk Club. We do not talk about Monk Club. Uh, and if this is your first night at Monk Club, you've got a monk. So, <laughs> so uh, to, to cross into the mid-tier levels, uh, 
you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, thereabouts, you had to fight somebody ahead of you for a position in your order. Uh, interesting note, which I, I like it as a concept, but it becomes a little unwieldy in play because you then have to periodically monofocus on a single character uh, yeah. while they fight for advancement and the rest of the party takes a breather and like, okay, everybody go have pizza. The monk is going to try and gain a level. Um, you know, just that I always thought that was a little clunky, but a, a nice idea. Yeah, you know, you could apply the same principle to wizards. Now, oh, yeah. I, I have occasionally done exactly yeah, that. Uh, exactly. When they are members of an order that requires that uh, they achieve rank by succeeding somebody who already holds it. Uh, but it, I've really only done that in one or two instances. Uh, Game-wise, most of the time I just let wizards be wizards. Uh, but the monk had this stellar array of abilities that, in the earliest edition, they were a little ham-fisted. Some of them made perfect sense. They were rooted in self-discipline, both of the body and of the mind. Not really magical abilities, and so, you know, the ability to dispel magic does not prevent the monk from exercising these powers. Now, I thought that was a noteworthy tidbit. In a magic-heavy campaign, you've got somebody who bypasses that. Uh, that's worth stopping and taking note of. That's yeah, and pretty cool. There's, there's a lot to say about how it was handled in the early editions, and we spent some time talking about that, but I'd like to kind of move it a little bit along to the place of the monk in a campaign. Now, whether you're playing a strictly, you know, this is, uh, you know, almost a fantasy historical Arthurian re representation of my uh, European fantasy world, or if it's just one like um, Forgotten Realms or Galarian and Pathfinder. I think there's room for just about everything and uh, under the sun. And if you really want to restrict players' options based on the esoterics of a monk, I think that it was a little unfair at first. But since we've moved on from that, the idea of having a martial arts heavy culture within uh, traditionally high-bound Western-type cultures is interesting. And, you know, you can take the monastery system and use that as a basis where they train with different forms of non-lethal combat, much like the uh, Shaolin monks of our own history. Mm. You know, that they didn't necessarily use many weapons, but they used styles in order to defend themselves when they did travel. And I think that translates well, but... And an emphasis on, you know, grace. Yes. That... Uh... It is as important to do something well as it is to have done it thoroughly. Uh, honestly, when it really comes to combat, the big question is, are you still there afterwards? But there's something to be said for, you know, hey, not only are you still here afterwards, but that was freaking beautiful, man. Sure. And, you know, just using the monastery system of uh, medieval Western Europe, you can easily integrate a monk into a campaign. And uh, maybe they look more like Friar Tuck than they do uh, Jackie Chan. But at the same time, the idea is pretty simple. Um, you have a cloistered group of solitary practitioners of a martial ethos. And they 
practice with each other and even in certain circumstances I'm just going to grab this out of the air from Pathfinder um, with uh, infernal intentions or extraplanar influences from the heavens um, or hells the uh, what is it the daughters of the golden Aranes whoa uh, you know female monks who are caught by an Aranes devil in uh, martial arts and they are disciplined to be disciples of hell and oh. carry forth the precepts in their native culture of Sheliax. They never and fight to the death. They only fight to the pain. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And uh, so those are use, useful kind of transferences of what basically monkish arts are as a discipline of a divine origin or extraplanar, if you want to get that uh, esoteric with it. But made manifest in flesh and discipline, and that's what it's all about. Why monks must be lawful. That is one thing I've always kind of kept to, because you just people uh, liked the drunken master from third edition. Boy, if you can, <laughs> if you've ever had one at your table, you know what I'm talking about. Wild brawling drunk drunkard. But uh, also, <laughs> there's also a. a <coughs> A little bit of room for, I guess, a chaotic one, like the Brawler class that uh, came out in the Advanced uh, Class Guide, which was a mismatch of the fighter and uh, the monk. Hmm. And um, See, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, we, uh, Brawler, who is, you know, that kind of fits more of that ethos, but it works just as well. And uh, the monk, I think, is a worthy addition. It adds a little blend of mystery and also shows kind of that skill at focus and discipline that is only gained not through the perfection of arms, but the perfection of the self. Which I think is the big attraction for a lot of people or back in our day for going with martial arts, that you didn't have to have a weapon. You just made yourself into a more cunning and disciplined opponent. Well, and speaking for the usefulness of the monk overall, uh, everybody who has listened to the show regularly, knows what a fan I am of Module A4, uh, Dungeons of the Slave Lords. Uh, that was probably the greatest moment to be a monk ever written in d, &D <laughs> yeah. okay? Everybody else uh, is yeah. down in a dark pit with no gear and their spells beaten out of their memory. Uh, and, you know, they're exhausted and you can barely get a couple of clerical spells together because you're, you're too beat up and too tired and hungry. Well, in comes the monk. If you were playing a monk in that particular adventure, uh, you were the king of the party. Finally. Yeah, it, it all came to you. Those, yeah, you can take the weapons away. You can take the armor away. Yeah, no armor, no weapons, no magic items, no spells. And you still kick butt. That's all you need. Oh, yeah, you're Chuck Norris on steroids. Yeah, you know, well. Just, yeah! Well. Hello, you know, dog wagging the tail. <laughs> yeah, that's literally, you're going right back on that one, you know, full circle. So, I think that the monk has, uh, it's caused some controversy, and definitely, you know, our take on it is simply that, hey, you know what, if you want to play a monk, I'm all for that. Well, Never yeah. had that problem, but I also think that as far as the campaign goes, it is a little different for people to kind of wrap their heads around, especially when you're thinking token. Suddenly now you have to think, what, you know, I'm playing in a Far Eastern type fantasy too? Yeah, sure. But at the same time, it can be well integrated into your campaign if you do the little bit of 
brain work ahead of time and looked for opportunities to integrate where a monkish society could have flourished under the same circumstances they did they did in our own history. Yeah, for handwritten campaigns, I kind of ascribe to the Ed Greenwood technique, which, uh, similar to Forgotten Realms, uh, incorporate as much as possible uh, from cultures around the world, uh, and then very much put your own fingerprint on everything. Make it unique, make it respectful, but also try to have a comparison to just about everything that players might express an interest in. You know, just oh, to yeah. have it there as a resource that if somebody wants to play, well, here's Kara Tour. Uh, you know, if uh, somebody wanted something more Welsh, Celtic, Breton, uh, it was the Moonshea Isles. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there were antecedents to all of the things that were present in Forgotten Realms. Uh, and, likewise, in, uh, well, Greyhawk. Uh, you know, there were many Well, also places. Galarian, conversely. I mean, and, any good yeah, campaign Pathfinder world, is, is any good campaign job. world has that in it. Um, I think it's perfectly suited that Forgotten Realms did it, uh, was there on the spot with it. But, you know, uh, and Greyhawk had the Scarlet Brotherhood, which were all monks. Yeah, although they were all mean. Well, yeah, they were, but there were also... If there are evil Scarlet Brotherhood monks who are blonde-haired, blue-eyed racists... The, the Scarlet Punks. Yeah, Scarlet Punks. Then there should be something conversely. Oh, yeah. They, it's uh, not there, like but they that. didn't really delve into it. There were, I think, uh, what is it? Jeez. Uh, Ghost Tower of Inverness. Oh. Had a monk as a pre-generated character that uh, supposedly had a... Monastery in the Duchy of Ernst, huh. where it took place. So interesting. I had forgotten most of the. You know, we should do an examination of the Ghost Tower of Inverness. It's a very unique module. As yeah, it is a kind of one of those a, tournament modules that exactly. got made good. I mean, it, it and uh, by way of explanation, when we say tournament module, it it was originally designed for play as a tournament event at a game convention. Yeah, they didn't even roll uh, dice. Yeah. Everything was predetermined. And, you know, you just rolled this, and so everybody would have a fair chance. No, I don't necessarily approve of that myself, no. but they needed to speed the game along due to time considerations. But the module release, of course, conformed to standard D&D rules, and I thought was much more entertaining. Yeah, the module taken but, out of its turn. That's, but that's worthy of an examination, good. but that you're right. There was a, a monk involved in the plot in there that I'd forgotten about. Uh yeah, it was kind of like the Dirty Half Dozen. You know, you were all <laughs> renegades and outlaws, and only one character, the the poor monk, was the only one. It's like the only honest guy in the entire group who he's like, okay, I'm supposed to kind of, you know, observe and run herd on these lunatics. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, you know, was given his payment for one year as a back taxes. You know, one yeah. year of servitude to the to the duke. So. Yeah, the monk, they do have a lot to kick about. And uh, I think that it is one of those tropes that came out of that weird mismatch of fevered <laughs> dreams of the 70s. I mean, just that crazy stuff where we were incorporating yeah. everything. I assume hashish was involved at some point. I just, you know, that's my, my default yeah. explanation for everything that came out of the mid to late 1970s. I'm almost sure it involved a hash pipe, 
uh, you know, covered in old resin. So, <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, still, that having been said, critiques aside, I was just describing that uh, you know it was the result of too many bowls of chocolate frosted sugar bombs. <laughs> you know, this is the fevered imagination of comic books, Saturday morning cartoons, and fantasy novels that you know allowed everybody just like I'm just going to imagine this, and it's just going to be the greatest thing ever, and I'm just going to write about it. And then you collapse, and then like, oh, uh, what was I thinking about? Yeah, that, uh, that yeah. ADHD haze. Ooh. <laughs> so, um, monks, I think uh, in fifth edition as well as Pathfinder and the. Anything roughly after third edition has really given them a fair shape and put them squarely in the fantasy trope. And if you have a monk or you're playing a monk, man, good on you. If you played it in the old days, wow, you were a trooper. You should get a freaking medal for that kind of stuff. I mean, just seriously, that was a tough uh, gig to play the monk as written out of the player's handbook. And, you know, yeah, there were other additions and, you know, subclasses and redos that made it a little more tolerable. But, man... Uh, a well-played monk was a sight to behold, especially when you get captured and thrown into the pits of the slave lords, man. That's when it all came together. Yeah, that was your moment to shine. Well, and, you know, with an adept DM, uh, those moments to shine happen in other campaigns as well. Yeah. But uh, that, I suppose, constitutes our examination of the history and relative pluses and minuses, uh, strengths yeah. and deficits of the monk class. Right. So, you know... Um, when you see a Scarlet Brotherhood monk and Greyhawk, kick him for me, please. <laughs> Those guys deserve everything they have coming to them. Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, we won't say that on air, but uh, yeah, you guys, uh, surf Nazis must die. Sewell Nazis must die. Sewell Nazis must die. Yep. Oh, classic movie. Yep. <laughs> Oh, welcome to the 80s, man. That was uh, some of some of the youngers do not know what they were missing. It's a great time to be alive. It was. Uh, so so <laughs> if you haven't played a monk, go out and get yourself a monk, roll one up and just oh, throw and, down. And uh, remember this classic line from the Trinity movie series. Any monk who is a monk, punch a monk that ain't a monk. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. One of those contexts. You got to see the movie, but yeah. 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 If you remember those movies, send us a note. All right. <laughs> well, with that, we've taken up a lot of your precious time, and we appreciate you listening to us ramble on. And Thank you for bearing with us. We had a lot of fun talking about the monk, and of course, if there's anything that uh, you'd like to hear us talk about or complain about, or you have something about that we messed up, or you just think that uh, we just got it completely wrong, because we probably did. Uh, just send us a message on Facebook, on our Facebook page at The Dice of Screaming, or get a hold of us on Twitter at me at uh, Death Hand Gaming. That's D E T H Gaming and Magi Box. Right. Or just leave us a message on Anchor. Hey, we're on 10 different platforms on really? from Anchor. Yeah. Oh, man. They added a couple to Yeah, they? they did. Oh, bravo. Hot dog. We're doing pretty well. So, all right. But we'll. Uh, Shove off and weigh anchor and all that. Uh, we'll see you again next week. So have a happy weekend and good gaming. And remember, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.